Oh, last week we were talking about Matthew chapter 5 and these weird statements of Jesus where he says things like, if somebody slaps you on the right cheek, turn him the other cheek also. And you're like, what does that mean? And so we turn it into this thing, you know, turn the other cheek and be passive and don't fight back. And if someone asks for your tunic, give them your cloak as well. And it's just like, give the people the shirt off your back. And then the last one was, someone asks you to go one mile, go a second mile with them and this whole idea we've turned into, go the extra mile, good customer service. And we talked about what's really going on there that has nothing to do with what we often think. But it was what? Jesus' third way. It was a way of Jesus helping us navigate our way out of when we're stuck between a rock and a hard place. Jesus says, hey, there's a way to squeak out of that. There's a way to stand up for yourself and not be just giving in to violence or abuse, but also not to become an abuser yourself. There's a way to navigate through that that's not passive or aggressive, but it's creatively assertive. That's what we were trying to show. And so Larry backhanded me with my permission, and Greg was just helping out. But yeah, so anyways, it was, I had fun. And it's interesting, where we're going this morning, I didn't even realize this actually follows right on to this whole idea of the third way, which is convenient. We're going to start there, and we're going to take it a little bit different direction. So I'm going to pray, and we will dive right in. Jesus, you are here with us. We're here to encounter you and to be encountered by you. We're here to be energized by you, to be spoken to. We're here to connect our hearts more deeply to yours and to get to know more about you, yes, but even more importantly, get to know you better. After all, this is a relationship we're in. And you're a person that we relate to. And so may we see more of you again this morning. May we see more of your beauty, more of your brilliance. May we see that you care. May we see how you respond to us in in times of need. May broken imaginations of who you are be replaced with reality this morning. Will you just think for a minute, think about, think for a moment the last time you made a decision or you did something that you weren't really proud of. Think about the last time you made a decision or did something that you weren't really proud of. Who would like to share first? No, I'm totally kidding. I know, that's not... Somebody wanted to throw something. No, but, but think for a minute about the last time you made a decision that you weren't really proud of. And now, for some of you, it might be like, you know, two minutes ago. For some of you, it might be two months ago. That doesn't matter, but usually what happens when we do something we're not proud of, it's often the same cycle, isn't it? At least for me, this is what happens. I'll do something, I'll realize I shouldn't have done it, and then all of a sudden, there's just this storm of voices in my head, telling me something about what kind of person I am. Anybody else? Have you ever sat through a swirl or a storm of accusation, of shame, of 
wow, look at what you are. You're blank. You're this. You're that. And, and you know what's crazy to me is often when those voices come, there's a part of me that thinks that one of those voices belongs to God. We'll come back to that, but I have a feeling I'm not the only one. I, I was sitting there at the, we went to the beach last night as a family. Nathan had his first real encounter with sand, and it was pretty adorable. He actually, for the first like five minutes maybe, did you say, didn't even put it in his mouth. We're like, how does he know that it doesn't go, oh, okay, there he goes. And next thing we know, you know, I'm sure you parents have experienced that, sand in the mouth, and then he freaks out, and then he starts crying, and then his eyes bother him, and sand on his hands, and he rubs his eyes, and then it just spirals downhill, right? But, but the first five minutes were really enjoyable, and we got some cute pictures. And then it totally just pff, imploded on us. But, but I was sitting there, and I was thinking about this passage we're about to jump into, and I was watching the waves, and I was just thinking about just the kind of the, the chaos of the waves, yet the rhythm, but just the power of those waves. And I was like, you know what, I feel like sometimes... I'm sitting in this wave, these waves of just maybe of shame or of condemnation or of just negative voices that just keep coming at me, that just keep battering me, especially in times that I'm vulnerable. And, you know, we'll, we'll say things like, God is really, has anybody ever said this? God is just kicking my butt lately. Have you ever, have you ever said something like that? Like, I hear my, one of my friends say that all the time. God is kicking my butt lately. I'm like, really? What does that mean? <laughs> so the question is, when we're vulnerable, or when we don't feel like we're at our best, or when we've maybe done something where, and, and it's more than that, and we'll get to this, but I just want us to paint a picture. I want us to try to, to feel what this woman is feeling, whose story we're going to look at in a minute. But, but where is the voice of God in all these swirling voices? Which voice belongs to God, and what is God saying? So let's look at John chapter 7. The last verse and then chapter 8 through 11. And we'll, we'll take a minute to see what's going on here. And then we'll bring it back to us. Now remember, we're, our series is about beauty and brilliance, the life and personality of Jesus. And we're looking at how does Jesus respond to things? What kind of person is he? Because that kind of matters. Because we're in relationship with this person who is Jesus. We want to get to know him. So that's what we're looking for. But we also want to see how he intersects with our lives. So it's, it's talking about the disciples, and it says they each went to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, so remember, it's early in the morning, that's important for our story. He came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Do you think that she was caught in the act of adultery that very morning? Or is it possible that she had been caught the night before and that these very zealous Pharisees had actually been holding on to her overnight so they could bring her to Jesus the next morning? Now put yourself for a moment in this woman's shoes. You've been caught doing something that you know technically by 
law you could be stoned for, you get caught doing that and you get apprehended. And these men decide to grab you and take you somewhere and essentially hold on to you overnight until you can be brought to Jesus. What would you be feeling? Panic? Terror? Maybe at least a little bit of anxiety? That would be a very traumatizing experience, don't you think? So they bring her to Jesus and they say, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now let's, let's do some relationship math here for a second. How many people does it take to commit adultery? <laughs> At least two. I don't know. Yeah. It, it's unfathomable to me. It's a stretch of the imagination to picture single-handed adultery. That doesn't, that's kind of an oxymoron, right? It, it takes two. So where's the guy? The guy might have escaped, right? Maybe he got away. We don't really know, but do you think it's important to note that the guy's not really there? It's an interesting story. So this woman is on her own. The guy that she was with is, is nowhere to be found, and she's getting in trouble. And literally, they want to put her to death. And the, the Pharisees say, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law of Moses, now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. It's, and it's kind of said with like this, kind of like she's a piece of dirt instead of a person. Can you almost hear that in that? In the law, they command us to stone such women. And imagine, this, there's probably, I don't know how many, but this is not just one or two guys. There's probably 8, 10, 15, maybe even 20 guys around this woman. And we're, okay, I like to do kind of like interactive, have people come up and act it out, but I thought this one might be a little bit awkward to do that with, so I, I refrain. Um, but just picture for a moment. I mean, so this lady, just imagine this, so... This is a similar scenario. Imagine right now that somebody knows we're having a church service and somebody brings in a woman, like you hear the shuffle, and outside the door, some people maybe from another church, they literally, they bring this woman in and they bring her up front and they throw her to the ground in front of all of us. And they're standing and they're looking at me or they're looking at Mike Fry or they're looking at somebody and they're saying, hey, this woman deserves to die. What are you going to do about it? And they're looking at her like that. Can you imagine just the, some of the emotions going on, some of the, the tension, the angst, the, the torment the woman is feeling, the, the energy? And Can you picture even a tiny bit of what this woman would be feeling? And so they're standing over her, and she's freaking out. And they say, so what do you say? And apparently in the Greek, they are really emphasizing that the, the you should be italicized there. It's like, what do you say? In other words, what are you going to do about it? Mr. Tough Guy, Mr. Cool Teacher Guy, Jesus, what are you going to do? And it tells us they did this to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. Now what does this have to do with Matthew 5 and being stuck between a rock and a hard place? What the story here doesn't tell us is that Jesus 
is basically being confronted with two options. They're saying, look it, you can either stone this woman, if you really follow the law of Moses, you can stone this woman. But they know, and Jesus knows, what had happened was the Romans who had occupied their territory at this time, the Romans took away the Jewish right to capital punishment. They said that the Jews could not, what's the word I'm looking for, um, enact capital punishment on somebody except for things having to do with the temple. What does that mean? That means that Jesus is stuck between a rock and a hard place. If he follows through with the law of Moses, then this woman is going to be put to death, but he is going to get himself in trouble with Rome. If he does not follow through, then he's showing himself as a compromiser, somebody that really doesn't uphold the law of God. Do you see that? So it's like, Jesus, what are you going to do? Are you going to stone her and get in trouble with Rome? Or are you going to not stone her and show yourself as a false prophet and somebody that doesn't honor Moses? What would you guys do? Isn't it nice that Jesus went through this before us? Right? I would probably just turn and run. Grab her by the arm and be like, let's go, quick. Hey, what's that? Run. I don't know what I would do, but I would be stuck. And so Jesus just calmly, he just bends down I got a Charlie horse yesterday from beating up my boys on the beach. Um, Jesus, in a healthy way, wrestling, I should say wrestling. Um, So Jesus bends down and he begins riding in the dust. Now that doesn't mean much to us, right? Like I was drawing some little designs in the sand at the beach yesterday and it was cool, but do we have that Jeremiah verse up there? You see, these Pharisees, they would have understood something. Look at this real quick, and this is what Jesus is, Jesus says a lot without saying anything sometimes, doesn't he? He could say a lot without many words, and this is what he's saying. This is what they would have heard. This verse in Jeremiah says, Lord, you are the hope of Israel. All who forsake you will be put to shame. Those who turn away from you will be written in the dust. Because they have forsaken the Lord, the spring of living water. Now, Jesus is kind of accusing them of something, isn't he? Without really saying much. He's saying, hey, you know what I think you've done? You've gone from the fountain of living water to seeking after death. Now, at at some point, and I mean, I don't know how much to go into this. But what the Pharisees had done Let's put ourselves in the framework of Genesis. Remember at the very beginning of the story, there's two trees in the center of the garden. There's a tree over here that is the tree that was okay for them to eat from. And it was the tree of what? It was the tree of life. The one that was okay for them to eat from. It was the tree of life. And then, maybe over here, I don't know, maybe they're right next to each other, but there was another tree. And it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this tree, God told them, once they ate from it, it would lead to what? death. Which tree were the Pharisees eating from in this story? They're eating from this tree. The tree that leads to death. They don't care at all about this woman. 
or Jesus, they see her as a disposable, dispensable piece of garbage that's simply there to just prove their point and trap Jesus. Jesus says, hey, you have totally missed the point. You have walked so far away from life himself. Now go back to our story real quick, and let me show you how Jesus handles this, and it's actually beautiful. And we, we know this story, right? But I want us just to, to see it. So Jesus is down, and he's writing on the ground with his finger. And go back to the next part. And as they continue to ask him, so he's kind of stalling, right? I don't picture Jesus panicked. I don't picture Jesus freaking out. I just picture him kind of calm and collected. Don't you think that's kind of reassuring for the woman? Remember, put yourself in the woman's shoes. And Jesus is sitting here just kind of doodling in the sand. And you're like, how is he so calm right now? But Jesus is calm. He's not freaked out. He's not panicked. He's just stalling and he's saying, okay, well, here's what we're going to do. And he says, all right, let the person who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. That is ridiculously brilliant. Why had these men brought this woman to Jesus? To condemn her to death and to test Jesus, right? They had stuck Jesus between a rock and a hard place. And Jesus says, all right, that's fine. You want to play this game? Whoever is pure, whoever has never sinned, go ahead Lob the first stone. Jesus has done a few things there. One of the things he's done is he said, okay, you know what? I'm not going to be the one responsible for this stoning. If something goes down with this girl, it's going to be on someone else. But he knows, right, that none of these guys were innocent. He knows that none of them are going to be able to do it. So Jesus is essentially, it's almost like he took a mirror And he shined the mirror back at them, reflected the mirror back at them, and the accusation that they were heaping upon the woman through one statement of Jesus, the accusation that they had directed towards her gets reflected back upon them, doesn't it? Because what does it tell us? What did they start doing? It says, when they heard it, they went away one by one. They just start, and all of a sudden you can imagine like the energy and the angst and the the anger just kind of dying down, right, as they realize. They're looking at the woman, and they're all amped up. There's just all this adrenaline and testosterone, and all of a sudden, Jesus' words come and penetrate their hearts, and it's like, oh. And then it says that one by one, they just walk away. Till no one is left. Now, what do you think the woman is feeling as the last one leaves? Relief, peace, any other words you guys would use? Confusion, puzzled, what else? She has no clue what's next. Now here's, here's an important thing to think about. Jesus is still there. Could Jesus have thrown the stone? Those of you who are without sin, feel free to lob the first stone. 
did Jesus have every right based on our level of understanding to pick up a stone and, and end this woman? Does she know that? She might. Now that's a vulnerable place to be. And so Jesus stands up, and now this is really the thing that I think drew me to this passage. This is what I want us to hear. Imagine the absolute overwhelming tenderness in Jesus' voice in this very moment. He knows the anxiety, the angst, the panic, the terror, the trauma that she's been feeling. And in this brilliant way, he's deflected and, and basically reflected the condemnation, the accusation that these men were trying to heap onto her. He's, he's simply, in a very creative way, put it back on them, and now he's left standing with this woman, and he knows everything that she's been going through. And he simply says, woman, where did they go? And I think it's better, remember we, this word woman, I, I don't know why we still do that in our English translations, because it's like, woman, where are they at? No, that's, that's not the feel here. It's more like, it's like, dear sister. I picture him picking her up, like taking her by the hand and, and lifting her up and saying, daughter, sister, where did they go? Has no one condemned you? And she says, and I imagine her lip quivering quite significantly. I imagine her stammering. She somehow gets it out. No one. And I bet she, I am almost positive she did not look him in the eye. I picture her looking at her feet because she's so filled with shame. And maybe, just maybe, Jesus delicately took her by the chin and lifted her eyes up. And he says, neither do I can. Go, and from now on, sin no more. Now, I don't know about you, but there's something in this story, and there's something in the way this kind of portrays Jesus that makes my heart just want to melt, because the tenderness and the compassion here just absolutely overwhelms me. And some of the guys are like, that's weird. No, I don't know what you guys are thinking, but because I know those voices, I know those feelings, those accusations when they come flooding, and I'm like, this is scarifying. <laughs> this is too much to handle. And I think if we were to put ourselves back in the story, because we've all kind of been there, right? I'm not saying, and it's not even necessarily having to do with adultery, but, I mean, think about the times when all these negative voices are flooding into your head. Maybe it's about expectations that you face, and you just can't shut off the flood of expectations coming around you. Or maybe it is about shame, something that you've done. Or maybe it's because you feel like you're just not enough. Maybe you, the voices that you hear are just, you're so not enough. You're never going to be good enough. You're never going to be sufficient. You're never going to have what it takes. Maybe that's what all the voices, maybe the, the men that stand around and heap things at your heart, maybe those are what the voices say. But 
But the reason this story is so important because we need to hone in where is Jesus in those moments when things just come flooding upon us and want to literally just drown our hearts in this sense of overwhelm. And I think if we could picture in those times, Jesus sitting there, calm, non-condemning, just making artwork in the sand. I mean, I don't know about you, but that would change everything for me if I could really grab a hold of that reality. That the voice in those times that belongs to Jesus is not one of the voices of condemnation or accusation or shame. But it's a voice that says, I don't condemn you. And for those of you that have the NIV, there's this really bad mistake in there. Um, did I just say there's a mistake in the Bible? I'm not. I'm so sorry, but I'm not. Um, here's what I mean. <laughs> That's exactly what I mean. I realized how that came out. I was like, that could be fun. <laughs> Is this recorded? Um, it says in the NIV, if I understand right, it says, then neither do I condemn you. What is that implying? Because they didn't, then I won't. No, that's not the case. Even if they would have condemned her, Jesus says, no, that's not how I operate. Jesus says, I don't condemn you. Now, we, we live in this kind of, now, nah, a couple minutes, we'll land. I find that for me, I, I bounce back between these two extremes. We use terms like cheap grace or sloppy grace. Have you heard those terms thrown around? It's like, well, if Jesus doesn't condemn us, then anything goes, right? Then, then anything's fine, and that's what people sometimes think. And as soon as you start talking about grace, then some people are going to accuse you of giving people permission to sin. It's like, well, if you talk about grace, then people are going to think they can do whatever they want. And to quote one of my favorite authors, a guy named Robert Capon, People aren't waiting for anybody's permission to sin. If people are going to sin, they're going to sin. You guys don't need my permission. You don't even need Jesus' permission. If that's what your heart is postured towards, that's where you're going to go, and you're going to find permission wherever you can. But then on the other side, it's like, well, we're so afraid of talking about grace that we're just going to talk about holiness. We're going to talk about living right before the Lord. We're going to talk about doing good things and making good choices and the fear of the Lord and all these things. And it's like, well, that's exhausting just talking about it. <laughs> because eventually I'm going to run out of steam trying to do that in my own strength. Have you guys, anybody else bounced back and forth like a freaking pinball <laughs> between those two extremes? Grace is good. Yes, let's camp out in grace. Oh, I think I'm maybe taking a little too far. Oh, let's come back here to holiness. Okay, I'm tired. It's been about two minutes. Okay, let's go back to grace. Bing, 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 bing. I feel like my head's going to explode. And what does Jesus do? He says, hey, let's find a third way between this whole thing. See, this isn't just about cheap grace where I say, hey, I don't condemn you. Go live however the hell you want, literally. That's not what Jesus is saying. He doesn't say, neither do I condemn you. Go do what you want. Lady, have at it. And nor does he say, go and sin no more, you piece of garbage. All these things these guys were saying about you was right. Now stop it. Get your act together. Grow up, you filth. You see, because that's kind of where the, you lean too much into the holiness side. That's kind of the language we start to hear about ourselves, isn't it? How many of us can ever live up to the expectations that we think Scripture puts on us? 
Thank you, Jesus, that you did it for us, right? So we have this cheap grace on one side and, and crazy, exhausting legalism or holiness on the other, and Jesus says, hey, why don't I help you navigate a way through it? I don't condemn you, but go and sin no more. And you know what he does? He tells us how to find the way right through that. We go to the next verse. It's actually in the very next verse. Jesus again addresses the crowds and he says, hey, by the way, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Look at these words and just let them sink in for a minute. And let's look for a minute at how they help us navigate away right in between cheap grace and exhausting legalism. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light. See, because the Pharisees that were accusing the woman, would you agree with me that they were walking in at least a little bit of darkness? They were feasting on this tree of the knowledge of good and evil which leads to death. They wanted the opposite of life for this woman. They wanted death for her. And this woman, now, you could almost make a case that she was looking for life, but she was looking for it in all the wrong places, wasn't she? If we were to dare, and if we wanted to be a little bit provocative, we could actually say that if we were to ask the question, as far as whether the woman or the Pharisees are actually closer to Jesus, you could make a strong case that the woman was closer to Jesus. Because she was at least looking for life, even though she looked for it in a dysfunctional and broken way. You see what I'm saying? So Jesus is saying, look it, if you want to find true life, not life that ends in darkness, I'll show you where to find it. It's walking right through the middle with me. Because I am light. I am life. And this is the way to go. What I feel, what I have on my heart for this morning, for, for where we take it from here, is I feel like Jesus wants to encounter us for a moment with a new understanding of not only this, of the way that he is light, the way he is life, but really with the tenderness with which he goes about bringing that into our lives. So what I'd like you to do, Bree's going to come back up when she's done playing with Nathan. Um, Bree's making her way up here. And she's going to play a song, but I want you all to just kind of think back to, maybe you had something come to mind when I shared at the beginning, to, to think about maybe the last time you made a choice that you weren't really proud of. Or, or maybe it's not that. 
maybe I'll say it this way. When's the last time that you could relate to this woman, where you feel like you're just sitting in a position where there's accusations and lies and voices swirling all around you, and you just want out, but you don't know the way out, and you're thinking, where is Jesus in this? Maybe it's the pressures and expectations of just being a parent or being a student or whatever it is, and you just feel like there's so much on you that you can't just kind of break away from the clutter and find Jesus in there. Or maybe it's you feel like life isn't going how you wanted, and you're just bombarded with discouragement and depression because you're thinking, is this what I signed up for? Is this as good as it gets? Or maybe it is something that you just can't shake, something that you just continue to fall back into this poor choice that you know you want to be free of, but you, as soon as you fall back into that or as soon as you kind of touch it again, you have these voices come at you. You're dirty. You're broken. You should be ashamed of yourself. And the question we always need to ask is, where is the voice of Jesus in those times? Which voice belongs to him? Because we need to silence. Actually, no, let's learn to let him silence all the other voices. And let him encounter us with his tenderness. So I'm going to pray for us, and then we're just going to take about five minutes and just kind of sit and let Jesus meet us in this place of whatever it is that causes us to feel overwhelmed. Bring his tenderness to bear and his peace and his calm and even his doodling in the sand artwork into our mess.